A mysterious process takes place once I start composing. Out of the blue, the materials come alive, at once dependent on and independent of my will. The exact moment when the musical idea occurs is quite elusive. Sometimes I spend days pursuing that moment, and I can't find it. Then, just when I least expect it, it hits me. So it is very difficult for me to tell you how that magic moment comes about when a musical idea takes form and resolves a situation of creative difficulty, or the initial crisis when writing any sort of music. It is like love between a man and a woman. The first moment is something unquantifiable. I would have to say that it is the unconscious sum of all the things I love. From the music I love, to people, things, experiences from childhood. The sum of all of this is combined with study and guidance of my maestro, and the condensed technique acquired from certain composers. In the cinema, you have to create sensations, and to do this you have to have recourse to various modes of communication, but not to the sum of the various modes. Rather, the synthesis of them.
Thank you for listening to the Film Jive Podcast. I'm Zach Batanti. On July 6, 2020, Italian composer and musician Ennio Morricone passed away at the age of 91 years old. Many obituaries and admirers' eulogies have attempted to account for Morricone's influence on both the cinematic and musical arts, often finding it difficult to contend with Morricone as an artist who embodied a variant of what we now describe as the quantified self, with Morricone frequently producing and reproducing new work through a re-evaluation of his own previous efforts. Many scores often felt like revisions or elaborations on those that came before. In this respect, Morricone's discography of nearly 500 film scores, pop music arrangements, classical compositions, and compilations is simultaneously measurable and immeasurable, precisely because it was so rigorously continuous. It is in this spirit, the spirit of quantity, that this compilation derives its intention. A collection of individual encounters with Morricone, which propose an engagement with the various formal arrangements and procedures found in Morricone's cinematic compositions. It should be noted, given the quantity of Morricone's output, that this compilation remains a highly personalized series of accounts according to each of the individual contributors and reflects less so Morricone's own perspective and rather how his work resonates with each of them. The piece beginning the show was Romanzo, which serves as the theme to Bernardo Bertolucci's 1976 historical Marxist epic Novecento, or as it is known in English, 1900. Set in the Emilia-Romagna region of Italy, Novecento portrays the emergence of class consciousness among the peasantry at the beginning of the 20th century and their struggle against fascism. Romanzo begins with an ode to Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. Morricone elicits a grand sense of harmonic nobility through a quiet humming chorus, which aurally illustrates the film's physical and thematic shape a fanfare evoking the timelessness of proletarian struggle through the tradition of the folk opera and its preoccupation with the everyday, simple in its structure yet both introspective and glorious, distinguishing the film's primary dialectic of realist and fantastical cinematic modes, accomplishing an expression analogous to sound and image, poetry and music, eliciting an emotion of flight which Morricone would achieve throughout his career. Before remarking on Morricone's biography and artistic practice, I would like to introduce an original piece of music generously composed by musician Mark Ladev, aptly titled Ennio Morricone. Mark reflected on his piece with these words. Ennio Morricone is dead. For me, as a composer and musician, Morricone was like an old fuzzy carpet draped over my ears, sometimes too warm but I loved his dramatic spaghetti western tunes with all of their shouts and whistles. I think My Name is Nobody was my personal favorite. In my case, I used his name for a title of a production I made. I thought to myself, what did Ennio listen to while he was a young man? I was playing all of these pieces and it snapped. Yes, I will call this piece, which originally had a completely different name, Ennio Morricone. And just as I am writing these words and listening to the title, I see Ennio in front of me. Together we are listening, 
and I see a big smile across his face. city of Rome, during the rule of the National Fascist Party, Ennio Morricone began his formal education at the age of 12, studying the trumpet, like his father, composition and choral music at the Conservatorio de Musica Santa Cecilia in Rome. In retrospect, one observes that these three distinct musical forms and their relation to each other would remain the underlying tensions which unified all of Morricone's subsequent work. He would spend the remaining 1950s working, often under various pseudonyms, as a pop music arranger for the Radio Televisione Italiana and performing as a jazz trumpeter. In 1958, Morricone traveled to southwest Germany to participate in the Darmstadt Music Festival, where Morricone encountered John Cage and his use of chance procedures, which would have a profound influence on Morricone's understanding of writing contemporary music. After collaborating with Italian filmmaker Luciano Salci in the theater, Morricone was invited to score Salci's film Il Federale, or The Fascist, in 1961. 
but it was Morricone's score featured in Sergio Leone's 1964 spaghetti western starring Clint Eastwood, A Fistful of Dollars, that first brought him international recognition. Morricone's A Fistful of Dollars score, which he would later describe as the worst score he ever wrote, nonetheless would become synonymous with the sound of the Italian spaghetti western, articulating an unconventional soundscape composed of whip cracks, human whistling, and an operatic chorus accompanied by classical citations and elements of pop. to redefine the role of music in the Western genre with subsequent films, editing the image to facilitate a complete musical expression, and initiate the transition from classical to modern cinema, Morricone would later express, I will make a very simple paradoxical statement. If a director gives a composer 10 seconds of time, he cannot be heard and therefore cannot collaborate with the director. However, if a director gives 10 minutes of time, the composer can express himself properly. If the 10 minutes that you have been given can be heard, and it is not drowned out by either the dialogue between the characters or the special effects and action which distracts the public from the music, then the music will be appreciated. However, if in those 10 minutes you cannot even begin to hear any musical expression because of the dialogue or action taking place at the same time, the music is completely destroyed. Therefore, 10 seconds of music, if it can be heard, is far better collaboration between director and composer than 10 minutes of music, which has been stifled by other factors within the film. The final decision of whether to hear the music or not remains in the hands of the director. If the director believes that the music serves a function as a dramatic and expressive form, then the music will be heard. If not, then it will not be heard. This is not a fault. We must always keep in mind. Sergio Leone as the central character in this question. In 1965, Morricone would serve as a founding member of the Gruppo de Improvisazione de Nuova Consonanza, an avant-garde improvisation collective dedicated to developing new musical techniques through improvisation and experimentation. This musical collective would contribute to many later Morricone scores, including a Quiet Place in the Country, Cold Eyes of Fear, 
and the Cat O' Nine Tales, and influence his approach to instrumentation, most notably recognized in Morricone's score for Elio Petri's political thriller Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. A monothematic score, composed with the application of the Jews' harp, an instrument Morricone would revisit with increased frequency in the decades to follow, and a honky-tonk piano accompaniment, Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion lucidly embodies Morricone's commitment to experimentation via musical materials, an embodied approach that was the result of intermeshings of local and global sounds. The score allocates a violent transition from Morricone's flirtations with neo-romanticism, which he would return to, evoking a newfound materialism that abandoned meaning-making, at least for the interim, in favor of techniques of the musique concrète to conceive of new sonic and cinematic configurations, crafting an auditory concurrence synthesized by distortion, extended technique, and musical motif which introduced variability into film music. first cinematic collaborator, Luciano Salci, once remarked to Morricone, I discovered that you are a mystical composer. In an attempt to clarify and disenchant Salci's translation, perhaps this mysticism refers to or derives from Morricone's own dispelling of the illusion of musical representation, cultivating sound that more so reflected an ephemeral dimension. The music isn't confined to the space of the film's narrative, or even the time of the music's production, or the time of the story being told. It comes from and returns to the outside, as it were, performing an intrusion of the image, 
implying the possibility of film music's autonomy from the film itself. Like many tendencies in cinema, there is often an attempt and desire by both the filmmaker and the spectator to commit to an impression of that which has already been written, or a predestination which film scoring would naturally subordinate the image to. However, Morricone's best work seems to seize upon the precarity of the past-future dialectic, folding the similar into the dissimilar, liberating its contingent dimension, accentuating its erotic sensual quality. Morricone recognized the possibility for music to emphasize feeling in a manner which could extend the emotion felt well beyond the duration of the image, leaving the listener with the impression of sound transmitted from their unconscious mind, not just echoing the past, but producing thought yet to come. With these observations in mind, I'd like to introduce Poverty from Sergio Leone's 1984 film, Once Upon a Time in America, with Morricone's own recollection of conceiving the score, which speaks to the theme's ability to transcend duration and distill the totality of life. There are two distinct divisions. One is the music of the characters, which expresses them quite apart from the ambiance in which they are situated. The other type is about the ambiance of places, and is suggested by the circumstances and reality of where the action is situated. These are two completely different types of music. The first deals with the interior aspect of the character, and is done by the composer. The second is less the music of the composer. If I write music on Chinese folklore, it is my music, only by chance. Chinese folklore music has been in existence a lot longer than I have, and is part of a historical process. I can't use authentic instruments. I can write jazz very well. It isn't a problem for me. But it doesn't involve much invention, because jazz is something already historically acquired. It would be the same if I had to do a film about Mozart and write music a la Mozart. That would be an exercise of pure craftsmanship. But it wouldn't be my music. It would be the music of Mozart. If I were to compare the jazz music in Leone's film with my themes, mine are far more important. They come into the film when the camera looks into the eyes of the character. The theme then singles out what he is thinking at that moment, what is going on inside, what he is about to say. The pain and joy inside a character is what my music is about.
Greetings. Uh, my name is Zach Layton, and I'll be discussing Ennio Morricone's score for Metti Una Sera a Sena. The English title is Love Circle, or um, the translation from the Italian being uh, One Night at Dinner. It was an Italian film directed by Giuseppe Patroni Griffi, um, of course, the great score by Ennio Morricone. Incidentally, uh, this film was also co-written by uh, the great Italian filmmaker Dario Argento, who did the classic Suspiria. Argento and Morricone would work together again on a number of films, including The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which has a great soundtrack as well. I love those films from the 1970s uh, that... Morricone was doing with Italian directors. There's some really fantastic, um, exploratory, almost free jazz soundtrack material in that. But there's something about this film in particular, Metti Una Sera Asena, that I, I always just loved um, this, this soundtrack. There's a very simple um, melodic theme that returns over and over throughout the soundtrack. It's just uh, C, D flat. B flat. Da, 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 There's a kind of a uh, three-note riff that goes da da and he repeats it in a number of different ways. But there's something just so um, incredible and uh, restrained about the simplicity of working on a theme with just such a limited am- amount of pitch material. But what he does with it rhythmically, the way he changes the speed from one song to another um, and um, and the orchestration choices that Morricone makes in this in the beginning um, the very first song opens up with a um, a guitar with a wah-wah pedal and then you hear that that uh, three-note theme and then it's doubled um, by the vocalese voice female voice uh, a wordless singing of that particular theme again and there's something um, erotic about um, the sound of the female voice in this context, which is appropriate because this film is about a, uh, a sort of a menage a trois love triangle um, between a, uh, a playwright and his wife and, uh, and his best friend. You know, it was 1969. There's something about the orchestration choices that Morricone makes here that I just find so uh, captivating. There's uh, piano and um, percussion, his use of the harpsichord doubled with an electric guitar, and kind of lilting above it all, you keep hearing this theme sung by, uh, this wordless theme sung by a female voice. And um, I just find this whole soundtrack to be so captivating, and it's one of my favorites. I know there's so many other materials um, by this prolific composer um, who's done so many works, but this is my favorite. Thank you. 
Hi, I'm CJ Lyons. I write for various websites like Den of Geek and The Reprobate, as well as running a blog about ninjas called Ninjas All the Way Down. And I'm here to talk to you about one of my personal favourites, Ennio Morricone pieces. While he's most commonly remembered for his iconic film scores, the maestro also has an impressive canon of pop compositions. Throughout the 1960s, he wrote jazz and pop songs for a whole range of Italian artists, he had some huge international hits, like Every Time by Paul Anka, and the classic Se Telefonato by Mina. Even after he became a prolific classical composer, Marconi continued to dabble in pop all the way into the 2000s, working with artists like Sting, The Pet Shop Boys, and Katie Lang, to name a few. For me, though, the jewel in his pop crown has to be the 1974 recording A Flower Is All You Need, featuring Greek singer Demis Roussos on vocals. The song was originally recorded for a now-obscure Italian animation called Around the World with Painet's Lovers, but has been remembered thanks to its presence on the opening credits of Aldo Lado's 1975 horror movie Last Stop on the Night Train, aka Night Train Murders. Lado chose the piece for its joyful Christmassy sound, apparently, but there's an undeniable eeriness to it as well. After all, as optimistic as the song is, the opening line is Tell the world I saw a man fall in the street and die. Uh, happy Christmas? Morricone and his orchestra recorded their parts of the song in Rome, while Roussos cut his vocals in Paris. As far as I know, the two never met, which is a great shame, as it would have been quite the meeting of minds. They were both formidable artists, experimental and instantly recognisable. I guess Roussos is best remembered in the UK for his dreamy, sun-kissed pop hits of the 70s that achieved immense popularity with middle-class holidaymakers dreaming of Greece. But his discography has far more to offer. From his early prog rock with Vangelis, all the way to his final album, which ends with a nine-minute song called Who Gives a Fuck? He was a radical recording artist, to say the least. In fact, listening now to his unique vocal style, it might baffle newcomers that he wasn't just a chart-topper, but widely considered to be a middle-of-the-road one at that. His voice, this powerful, wavering falsetto that you're about to hear, is anything but pedestrian. Love it or hate it, it's hard to ignore, and you'll hear it at its most extreme in A Flower Is All You Need. It's like Morricone's music stirs up a storm in Roussos. An instrumental version exists, and is maybe more palatable for the casual listener, but it feels naked without Roussos howling over the top. Even if they never stood in the same room, their musical spirits intertwine beautifully for this five minutes of pop perfection. Marconi and Roussos were a perfect match. I hope, wherever they are now, they're making sweet, sweet music together. Enjoy!
my name is Alexandra Helen Nicholas, and I'm a film critic, academic, and festival programmer from Melbourne, Australia. I've written eight books on cult, horror, and exploitation film, including most recently 1,000 Women in Horror 1895 to 2018, and the Bram Stoker Award finalist Eyes Without Faces, Masks in Horror Cinema. I also wrote a book on Dario Argento's Suspiria in 2015, and in early 2021, my next book, The Giallo Canvas, Art, Excess and Horror Cinema, is also due for release. It's of course Argento that leads me to my Morricone selection today, but interestingly, it perhaps links more explicitly to my first book, which was on rape revenge cinema. I am talking, of course, about Morricone's soundtrack for Argento's 1996 film, The Stenthole Syndrome. The soundtrack is, of course, broadly excellent, but when I think about it, I most immediately recall the opening sequence of this film where Asia Argento's protagonist Anna is walking through the famous Uffizi Gallery in Florence. It is here she experiences the Sendhol Syndrome of the movie's title, named after the 19th century French author who wrote about experiencing it. The Stenthol Syndrome refers to their sensation of being so overwhelmed by works of great art that it has an intense physiological effect, fainting, disorientation, and even hallucinations. In the film's opening sequence, we see Anna suffer the Stenthol Syndrome as she is literally pulled into many of the gallery's most famous paintings, climaxing when she experiences being underwater when looking at Bruegel's landscape with the fall of Icarus. This entire sequence is a masterclass of music and image working together to create a sensory impact. But for me, the highlight is when Anna is looking at Caravaggio's Medusa and Morricone's soundtrack blasts with an unexpected alarm of brass. His score replicates through music what we see on screen, which is the Medusa warning Anna of a present danger. Indeed, it is Anna's experience of the Stenthol Syndrome that makes her vulnerable to the film's villain and sets the film's action into motion. The Stenthol Syndrome might not be Morricone's most famous film work, but remains to me one of his most moving, powerful and sophisticated collaborations.
Hello, everyone. This is Jim Laskowski from Directors Club, as well as Voices and Visions and the Now Playing Network. So I'm sitting here getting ready to watch The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly in 4K for the first time. Obviously, it's one of the all-time great scores that will likely be covered. And uh, I also became a much bigger fan of Morricone after hearing his work for The Hateful Eight projected in glorious 70 millimeter and uh, for the road show spectacular that was hosted um, by the music box in Chicago back when it came out and I went back and listened to a lot of scores but uh, I really wanted to highlight a recent discovery since I'll soon be preparing for the Lucio Fulci episode of Directors Club who's been kind of a blind spot for far too long uh, I came across a giallo of his called A Lizard in a Woman's Skin. Ah, you gotta love the titles of these giallos. And uh, the score immediately grabbed me, and one of the reasons why is uh, it's Marcone. What can you say? Like, it's spellbinding, and at the same time, it's very versatile. It's kind of all over the map here, but in a good way that fits you know, the tone of various sequences that kind of range from psychedelic to mournful to violent. And we often blur the lines between dream and reality, fact and fiction here. And clearly, Fulci just found the perfect collaborator in capturing a state of terror or um, a feeling of longing here in this particular film. And it incorporates, like, experimental jazz and 60s funk while uh, also being kind of disorienting, just <laughs> just like the movie itself. And uh, we also get a little bit of Ada Del Orso, whose vocals here really, really give it a nice contrast to some of the more harshal intensity going on throughout the score. But to me, this particular track that I chose sums up his strengths in a more ethereal, sublime, beautiful way. <laughs> It's, uh, it's essentially a ballad, and, and the chord progression just really moves me. I, I, I can listen to this entirely on its own and, and feel a lot of feelings. And I encourage everyone to pick up the uh, Mondo uh, Macabre Blu-ray for A Lizard in a Woman's Skin by Lucio Fulci. It also has a very insightful special feature that includes an interview with Stephen Thrower. I really could have included any track from this soundtrack, uh, which I plan to buy on vinyl. Hopefully. I'm sure it's out there, and it's got to be, because <laughs> it's great. And it really captures the unhinged state of mind of its protagonist and can veer into Bernard Herrmann territory without ever sounding derivative. With that in mind, please listen and enjoy this song entitled Soul Sur la Pelle. And I have no idea if I said that right. Zach, feel free to correct me. And again, it's really an honor to contribute to uh, Film Jive been a huge fan for a very long time and of course rest in peace to the legendary Inio Maracone.
Hey, film freaks, this is Psychonostic coming to you from my fortified bunker in Steel City, PA. I'm an underground artist, guerrilla librarian, dead media pirate, and subterranean cinephile with an eclectic interest in movies and art and how they relate to alternative culture and fringe history. You can follow me on Twitter at psycho underscore Gnostic and see my work at psychonostic.com. I'm really excited to discuss the work of the late, great Ennio Morricone. I'm sure his mainstream film scholarship continues to dissect his musical arrangements. Many popular scores will be examined, such as his works for Sergio Leone, Brian De Palma, and Dario Argento. I'm also certain that many scores will be singled out for their galloping intensity, such as the fantastic war march he constructed for one of the best films ever made, The Battle of Algiers. But as you go down the rabbit hole of his filmography, you'll find a lot of scores you weren't aware of, such as Mario Bava's comic book spy thriller Danger, Diabolic, Samuel Fuller's neglected anti-racist parable White Dog, and the horribly mistreated and downright abused sequel to one of the greatest horror masterpieces ever lensed, John Borman's Exorcist II, The Heretic. While far from perfect and mostly incomprehensible, Borman's sequel is disco-infused psychedelia, brimming with New Age surrealism ripped from the 70s zeitgeist. What began as a cash-grab attempt by producers to capitalize on the first film's success became an earnest attempt by Borman to understand the further progression of Reagan, played by Linda Blair, and her journey forward after demonic possession. With the demon exercised in the original film, we come to learn that its name is Pazuzu, and possesses those who have psychic healing ability, which Reagan demonstrates throughout the movie, such as telepathically helping a young autistic girl to speak. This moves Reagan's character into superhero territory, creating a tonal shift in this film not seen in the last. Where William Freakin's dark and perverse origin story of a child demonically molested is shrouded in ominous musical compositions like the theme from Mike Oldfeld's Tubular Bells, Borman's sequel is a spirited and hopeful continuation of Reagan's trajectory towards sainthood, and nothing exemplifies this better than Morricone's righteous melodies for the film. This leads me to my favorite piece from the soundtrack, entitled Magic and Ecstasy. With its fuzzy guitar distortion, ritual choral chants, and groovy structure, it has become my favorite Morricone score. Morricone gained a reputation as a composer who produced soundtracks better than the films he scored, and Exorcist II The Heretic is no exception. But don't let that stop you from seeing the film. It's a real curio, offbeat with a lot of great ideas, and Morricone's score will get stuck in your head for days afterwards. Long live the maestro.
Hi, I'm Heimbach. I'm an electronic music composer from Berlin, and for the longest time I had the coverage of the 7-inch of Once Upon a Time in the West somewhere in my studio. Now in German the title is a bit more exciting. It's called Spiel mir das Lied vom Tod, Play me the song of death. And that is what grabbed my attention yeah, back when I was a kid. So I decided to keep this cover around for my sister's record collection. But I don't want to talk about this piece, even though it was very influential ever since I was a little boy. What I really want to talk about is a weird score from Ennio Morricone. And that score is weird in that he's not sounding that much like Morricone, but like someone else. It's the soundtrack to John Carpenter's The Thing. John Carpenter was an absolute Morricone fan. He got married to his music after all. For all his early films, John Carpenter composed the music himself, most famously for Halloween. After a string of hits, he got a movie with a bigger budget than anything he'd done before, and that budget included a dedicated composer. And here, I guess, John Carpenter fulfilled his wish to work with his idol, Morricone. So in 1982, John Carpenter grabbed a very rough cut that was not finished at all and traveled over to Rome to meet up with the maestro. And immediately after showing the movie, he left. And your Morricone mused, I don't know, it seemed like it was a shame to show me the movie. We didn't talk at all. So I just started composing on my own. And without any input and without any talk, Ennio Morricone wrote one hour of music. But in the end, only one of these pieces ended up in the actual movie. It turned out that Carpenter faced a conundrum. He considered Morricone an absolute genius, but he didn't really like what Morricone had composed, except for one track. And that was something that Morricone cleverly already designed to be kind of like Carpenter's music. Because he had gotten no direction from Carpenter, he looked at what John Carpenter was actually doing in his own movies. He recorded a piece based on a minimalistic bass pulse and brought that with him to LA to finish recording the cues. Even the Carpenter-like piece needed fewer notes, according to the director, and Morricone worked it over to be more restrained and minimal, and this turned into the main theme of the movie. The strange and beautiful mixture of really simple, synth-driven, effective notes and Morricone's harmonic sensibility creates a very powerful theme. When you listen to the official soundtrack that was released, you can hear all the music that Morricone recorded for the soundtrack, including the main theme with the additional crazy organ part that did not find its way into the film, because when you listen to that, it just sounds so much more like the horror films of Italy of the 1970s, or the whole giallo genre. Carpenter needed something more simple, minimalistic and electronic to fit with his visual style, so he recorded the rest of the sound cues with his assistant himself. But it is the driving main theme that sticks with you. Ennio Morricone imitating Carpenter in his very own way.
I'm Christopher Funderburg, creator of the Pink Smoke website and writer-director of The Burning Bride. For my remembrance of Morricone, I selected a track from a movie I've never seen, Ricriazone Divertita from Cuero di Mamma, amusing recreations from the 1969 film Mother's Heart. Salvatore uh, Semperi's movie has never received a proper lease in the U.S., and my attempt to snag a copy after I first heard the song quickly revealed that there appears to be a meaningful amount of underage nudity in it, so I uh, decided to avoid getting put on an FBI watch list and abandon searching for it. I heard Recreazone on a double-disc compilation from IPACAC Records called Crime and Dissonance uh, that's mainly deep cuts, but not only obscurities, it has a specific focus on Morricone's weirdness as a composer. Morricone was incredibly prolific and worked in every genre imaginable, both film genre and musical genre, but he also invented his own genres on a regular basis, uh, music that didn't naturally belong to any coherent category. There's this whole subset of his work that I, I don't think can be described as anything but Morricone weirdness. The selection from Cori Di Mama stands out even in the context of his usual, unusual stylistic wanderings. And I mean wanderings. Uh, he was a composer who frequently traveled into uncertain terrains and didn't necessarily conquer them. He didn't try and command a variety of musical territories so much as purposefully get lost in them, right? Morricone's catalog is full of desert roads that dissolve into dust, you know, incomplete journeys that never reach their vague destinations. Musing Recreations is a track that charts just how wildly far he was willing to roam from convention. The track never feels like he's pursuing something in specific so much as seeking to expand his musical sense of the world, uh, his sense of how music might interact with image, how it might evoke image. It's an exploratory work. It's tempting to call it aimless or erratic, but he's experienced enough of a navigator that he never fully loses his way even as he drifts farther and farther from marked paths. Uh, I originally wrote a little bit about the connections between three of his pieces, Amusing Recreations, uh, Keloche Canta from Il Vogliamata, and Deep Down from Danger Diabolic, but cut down on the aggressions for time's sakes, for your sake as a listener. Uh, instead, I'll just get to my point, which is that the three pieces show the incredible breadth of style in his work. The three pieces are a wildly experimental piece, an earnest ballad, and a baffling bit of psychedelic sunshine pop that's half-heartedly imitating a James Bond theme as it devolves into something like lounge music. Uh, I think that if you had to describe Morricone, you would say he's the eternal stranger, the perpetual stranger, the man who's always out of his element somehow, uh, the composer who brings his strangeness, his outsider quality with him everywhere he goes. You know, what was his home? Where was his music at home? What style, what genre, what mood? Most composers live in a house they've built, right? Think of the famous Stravinsky rebuke to the conductor Ansemert who wanted to edit down one of Stravinsky's pieces. Stravinsky said, you're not in your own house, my dear fellow. Uh, the idea of building a, a stylistic house to live in is especially true of film composers. The most esteemed composers are almost instantly recognizable. Eric Korngold, Lalo Schifrin, John L. Williams. Um, by contrast with Morricone, sure, you might be able to listen to an unfamiliar Spaghetti Western score by him and say, yeah, that's a Morricone piece. But his Spaghetti Western music is only a fraction of his output. In reality, a Morricone piece could mean any number of things. He never seemed interested in 
building that kind of stylistic structure and living in it, in, in perpetually remodeling and reworking his surroundings. His artistic impulse was to set off for unexplored territory. You know, you have to seek out and discover Morricone weirdness. It won't just, you know, turn up in your garden. The Good, the Bad, and the Uglies, um, rightfully iconic main theme, has become such a cliche that it's easy to overlook how bizarre it is. Um, you know, while it doesn't completely shed the styles associated with the Western genre, it builds to a fairly traditional gallop, it still operates according to a logic entirely its own. It's a weird, weird piece of music with weirdness that's easy to overlook. I mean, the vocalizations alone are a gesture of near lunacy. If you heard this song, uh, this track, this piece of music in isolation before it made its mark on cinema. I mean, who knows what kind of movie you might imagine it had been composed for. That's why it's so fascinating for me to listen to Recreazione Divertita. It's from a movie I'll likely never see. So it allows me to imagine the film or the films that might go along with the track. Uh, the track is a series of brief individual segments, each seemingly unrelated to the other in style, tone, and genre. What possible films might these sounds have been composed to accompany? right? The track is extremely imagistic music making. There are sounds, concrete sounds like a ticking clock or a jostled amplifier that pepper the track and sketch objects or settings in the mind of the listener. And this is while the track is constantly shifting the mood and emotion around those settings and objects, right? The piece begins with the ticking of a clock, uh, possibly a metronome, that flows into a tinkling lullaby with a gentle melody that wouldn't have been out of place in a classic Disney movie. And just as quickly as the melody is established, it's submerged beneath a chattering, chirping round of competing women's voices, um, creating a sense of disorder and madness, kind of adults acting like children, a nursery rhyme sort of slipping into baby talk depravity. You know, when adults act like babies, it's always kind of grotesque. And then without transition, there's a burst of wah-wah-driven funk, a funk organ and voices literally singing wah-wah, you know, uh, because because there's a concreteness to the music and a sense of imagery, I always picture a shaggy-haired Italian rock band on stage during that section, like the actual dudes and goblins standing there singing wah-wah. But all that is like a prelude to the strangest shift. Uh, the aural motif most seemingly unrelated to the rest of the score, the one most tangentially related to even the concept of music itself. You know, suddenly after the funk, there's the sound of voices barking in unison to the monotony of a snare. Uh, it creates a sense of bodies moving in time with each other of like a military training exercise. And it's only a few moments of this highly unusual rhythmic beating of voices before the track abruptly transforms again into something that would accompany a coronation or a wedding, something regal and sentimental. And just as rapidly, it returns to the military theme. The whole section alternates between military exercise and coronation before it finally gets interrupted and capped by a dropped amplifier, this like farting brutality, you know, a disruption that undermines the regality of the Reading March so that the score can wander back to the mad chirping and end the piece. With these individual sections, there's a cartography of extremely disparate musical areas occupied by like 
In one space, the fanfares of Max Steiner. In another space, the warbling vocal distortions of George Crumb, the psychedelic rock of white noise music concrete of Bernard Parmigiani. Uh, throughout his career, Morricone would display approaches that it's easy to draw associations with, like, Philip Glass-style repetition, John Cage-type minimalism, uh, traditional triumphant orchestral arrangements, acid jazz, you know, Ethan Rose-type soundscapes, gothic brooding, Les Baxter exotica. Recreazione Divertita might be the track where he attempts to map the largest variety of musical landscapes in a single song. I think it's inevitable that anyone who listens to Recreazione Divertita will have different images conjured in their mind. Uh, to me, there are characters, the child for whom the lullaby is being played, shaggy-haired Italian rockers, the mad singing women who have something selfish about them, soldiers jogging through their exercises, uh, a bride or a queen. And I have no reason to think any of these characters actually appear in Query de Mama. It's, it's as though Morricone has composed his own film with the music and whatever images finally ended up being placed under it are beside the point. There's a Morricone movie he's already made just with the score alone. Extremely striking piece of music, extremely weird piece of music. Uh, I don't want to say that Recreazione Divertita is Morricone at his best or even Morricone at his most himself, but I do think it reveals what made him Morricone which is his willingness to be deeply weird <laughs> and explore routes that might not necessarily lead to livable terrain. I'd be unwilling to say that Recreazione uh, is a great piece of music, but I do think it has the experimental spirit and, and total sense of adventurousness that gives Morricone's work its vitality, its liveliness. Uh, it just what makes it live and breathe in Morricone. Uh, that's how his music is impactful, is through this sort of experimental, exploratory process. You know, the piece probably shouldn't be on anyone's list of Morricone's essential work, but it unquestionably charts the paths of his process that made Morricone essential. Thank you. 
Hi, we're Chloris, a production and screening collective focused on weird stuff. We're at Chloris.com and we're at Chloris everywhere. That's spelled K-H-L-O-A-R-I-S and all uppercase for those of you keeping score. Thanks to Film Jive for asking us to be involved in this special Ennio Morricone tribute episode. While working on this assignment, we went way down the rabbit hole with a very long piece with some information about the history of twang guitar music as used in soundtracks, the fuzz box, early reactions to spaghetti western films, Batmania, and James Bond fever. We'll try to keep this version brief and take you where we landed, although we'll be putting a long version of this on our newsletter soon in text form. We decided to pick something from Ennio Morricone's soundtrack to the 1968 Dino De Laurentiis-produced Mario Bava-directed Danger Diabolic. Not only is it one of our favorite films, it's maybe one of the few good superhero films ever. Based on an Italian Fumetti comic starring anti-hero Diabolic, the film's a perfect distillation of a decade of movements in pop cinema that includes ahistorical Italian westerns, international spy pictures, the resurgence of the superhero and the popular consciousness, pop art, and pop music. If you haven't seen the film, it's recently been released on Blu-ray and it's available as a digital rental here and there. We'd strongly suggest finding an HD version to watch. The film's a real feast for the senses and really demands to be seen and heard with the proper bitrate. We're lucky to have seen the uh, 35mm print of the film at New York City's Film Forum some years ago on a double feature with the Raquel Welch in a bikini vehicle, Fathom. The song we've chosen is Diabolic Number no. 2, or Filatura. It was titled Driving Decoys on a bootleg CD release of the soundtrack that's been floating around for a while now. From what limited information we've been able to find, it appears that the tapes to the Danger Diabolic score are lost. The version we have here is from a 2014 Italian CD release on the original Sounds Recordings label. It's a re-recording performed by the Solisti e Orchestra del Cinema Italiano. It's a high-fidelity recording, and they do a marvelous job recreating sounds from the film, and it sounds much better than the bootleg that's obviously recorded directly from the movie, dialogue and all. There are a few places on this recording with some synthesized horn parts that sound a bit anachronistic, but we could totally be wrong. This recording's worth hunting down to hear the entire score isolated from the dialogue elements on the bootleg. The entire score is a strong one, and it's almost as pleasant to listen to as it is to watch the film. It pulls together all of these disparate cultural elements that led to a film like this even being able to exist. Super spy movies, the Batman TV show, international westerns and other exploitation films, the sexual revolution, the Cold War, Kennedy's Camelot, the countercultural explosion, all into a melange of twangy fuzz guitar pieces, psychedelia, smooth vocal, easy listening-esque jazz pieces, eastern inflected, sitar-heavy world music electronic music, and even some avant-garde turns, as well as that typically atypical soundtrack music Morricone was known for. Diabolic Number no. 2 is an insistent, driving, beat, fuzz guitar number that's used for several chase scenes, especially early in the film. It's layered with the vocal motifs that we find elsewhere in the film, as well as some odd experimental and psychedelic sounds that tie it together with the entire score. It's the Batman theme if Batman composer Neil Hefty had collaborated with Terry Riley. We could listen to it on repeat play for days. 
On a personal note, we should add that we'd really love to see the superhero film morph into something more similar to Diabolic rather than the lifeless, focus-tested corporate monstrosities ruling the multiplex right now. Diabolic is cool, artful, colorful, and fun. In the film, Diabolic orchestrates a bank heist, steals a famous jeweled necklace, and blows up the nation's entire tax office, all while driving a cool car, looking great, and sleeping on a bed of money in his mod underground lair with his partner Ava, all with a wild panoply of music that you can dance to on the soundtrack. Isn't that better than Hollywood superheroes who are billionaire corporate overlords on screen and off? This is Gabe Powers from Genre Grinder, though you might also know me from appearances on Treks of the Damned and Director's Club podcasts. I'm actually a huge Ennio Morricone fan, which made it very difficult to pick a single song to talk about. At first, I was opting for one of his many thriller themes because Morricone was just as important in creating the musical language of the Italian gialli than he was creating the musical language of spaghetti westerns. But I buckled, and I'm instead going to tell you about one of his greatest lyric-driven songs, Run Man Run, from the opening titles of Sergio Solima's The Big Gundown, known in Italy as La Rasa dei Conti. Uh, I've opted for the English-language version, but there's an equally great Italian version titled Currer U Amo Currer. Both are sung by vocalist Mary Cristina Brancucci, 
Uh, using her professional pseudonym Christy, Christy supplied vocals for multiple Morricone compositions and is probably most famous for singing the uh, opening title song to Mario Bava's Diabolic, uh, known here in America as Danger Diabolic, uh, and featured on Mystery Science Theater. Uh, that song is entitled Deep Deep Down. She also dubbed Italian singing voices for animated American films, including Bambi, Oliver and Company, and Beauty and the Beast. I think Run Man Run is the best example of Morricone blending his cinematic and pop influences. It's also sort of a stealth overture for the entire movie, as almost every major theme is represented, minus a particularly cool suspense motif, La Codana, which uses Beethoven's Fur Elisu, uh, you might have heard this one towards the beginning of Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Uh, the song's lyrics likely refer to Bandit Cuchillo as played by Thomas Millian, but the sentiment could easily be applied to the aging bounty hunter dual lead Jonathan Corbett played by Lee Van Cleef. The Big Gun Down was arguably the first of the Zapata westerns, so named uh, after Emiliano Zapata. Uh, these movies were spaghetti westerns with left-leaning political themes. Uh, though it is notable for having a generally happy ending, which is unusual uh, when it comes to the later Zapata movies. Uh, Morricone's song, it, if it's driving drums and floating strings and throbbing horns, and of course Christie's goosebump-inducing vocals, capture the rollicking atmosphere and occasional humor seen in Salima's less somber version of the popular Zapata themes. If I was pressed, I might even say that the Big Gun Down soundtrack is Morricone's greatest Western masterpiece, edging out the many fantastic soundtracks he did with Sergio Leone and Sergio Carpucci. The film was followed by an official sequel starring Milian without Van Cleef, and it was entitled, of course, Run Man Run. Like a deer, like a rabbit. 
danger in the air, coming near. You can smell it and you're painting like a hare, like a deer, like a rabbit, running from a snare until fear is a habit. Run and run and run and run and run until you know you're free. Run to the end of the world till you find the place where the never, never, never. This is Robert Reinecke from the Still Watching the Skies podcast at wherethelongtailends.com. When Zach invites you on to talk about Ennio Morricone, how can one say no? The only problem comes from narrowing it down to one selection from the bounty that Morricone provided. Where does one begin? Once upon a time in the West? Once upon a time in America, even? The Carpenter-esque The Thing? The Sweep of the Mission? The best part of the Untouchables? We can go on and on and on. Fortunately, I'm not afraid of picking the low-hanging fruit, and I'm going for the music that defined a whole genre. The theme for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Morricone is really the fourth character of the film, commenting on and driving the action. I don't know the film would even be the same if he didn't have the theme on those long sequences of people just staring at each other. The theme is a classic that sounds like nothing that had become before. It's widescreen music for a widescreen film world. It echoes itself across great oral planes. It has the drive of a locomotive picking up speed. The guitar and harmonica are great references to the music of the West, but this is not some throwback traditional score, but something modern and yet timeless, which complements the geographically suspect mythical West that Leone is conjuring up, populated by larger-than-life archetypes none of whom are morally pure. It's a world of men and coyotes. It's a call to adventure. And it's also used in the film as almost self-parody and humor. It was instantly iconic and remains so to this day. Along with the great ecstasy and gold, it's mythic in the way that too few scores are. So, thank you, Zach, for inviting me on. I'm happy to see Film Drive is still alive and well, and hope to hear many more episodes in the future.
Hi, I'm John Cribbs, head writer for ThePinkSmoke.com. Ennio Morricone's collaboration with Gilo Pontecorvo on the director's masterful film The Battle of Algiers had been one of the more positive for the composer. Since Pontecorvo himself was a writer of music, it was better than most at communicating to Morricone the kind of sound he wanted. Pontecorvo brought Morricone back for his brilliant follow-up film, Queimada, released in the UK and US under the title Burn, a powerful story of colonialism and political manipulation set on the island Queimada, which means ablaze. And Morricone delivered a score ablaze, with layered instrumentation and a full competing male and female chorus crying out for abolison, or abolition. In the almost exact middle of the film, after Marlon Brando's rebellion-manufacturing mercenary Sir William Walker has practically, out of bored self-amusement, created a revolutionary figure of slave Jose Dolores, but before Walker returns to crush the same insurrection he started on behalf of the British Tea Company with interest in Queimada's sugar manufacturing, there's a very poignant moment. Dolores, stylized after real-life Haitian revolutionary Toussaint Vitor, has fled the vanquished capital in frustration. Realizing that after his oppressors have been conquered, there's little left for him to do but turn over the future of himself and his fellow countrymen to English bureaucrats. He's been caught up in the glory of revolt and never thought what would happen when he and his actions were no longer needed and suspects that he hasn't really changed anything. But as he walks dejectedly into his unknown fate, he's suddenly surrounded by adoring citizens cheering and dancing ecstatically at victory over subjugation. He's their hero. And you see in the face of Evernisto Marquez, a non-actor chosen by Ponte Corvo specifically for his face, every hope and possibility that only a moment ago he's regarded as a fantasy. We hear the music change, and we see him change too. He'll fight on, not as a pawn in the skirmishes between other countries, but as the liberator he's only pretended to be up until now. As he moves forward, engulfed in the bodies of his supporters, the organ plays a marching theme, accompanied by what sounds suspiciously like the Dan Electro bass heard in Morricone's most famous scores for spaghetti westerns, gorgeously harmonizing a hero's ballad, the easy and proud posturing of a savior, Jose's entire journey up until now. The orchestra is then brought in with a tender sadness, proving as transitory as the great revolution Jose will conduct in the film's second half. And finally, the organ returns with blaring high notes to suggest an ethereal transcendence, Jose's posthumous legacy, something as pure and genuine as the romantic ideas of revolution have proved to be false. I may not have the musical expertise to celebrate this gorgeous passage in the correct language, but it's easy to recognize it as the emotional heart of the movie. The beginning of the theme encapsulates the romantic notion of two people from different backgrounds coming together to change the world, recurs when Walker returns to the island and thinks with fondness on his time orchestrating the rebellion with Jose, he even asked one of his own locally deputized soldiers what he's doing there at the fort when he could be taking up arms with Jose in the hills of the Sierra Madre. Walker has never had what Jose has, the heart to fight for an idea rather than a paycheck. Morricone knew that this wasn't really a story about a government, a country, a history. It was the story of two men, and how the cynical worldview of one accidentally opens the eyes of another. That moment of awakening, which lasts less than a minute and a half, feels like the birth of every great political subversive since the formation of society. But more so, it's a beautiful epiphany for an individual who's found his purpose and takes control of his destiny. Morricone moves Jose Dolores from his past to his future and finally to his legacy. Yet another triumph. Good night, Maestro, and thank you.
Hi, this is Gary from Cinema Subculture, the podcast and YouTube channel. So, Ennio Morricone, one of the few household names in the world of film composers, has left us a vast legacy of 500 film scores. One I'd like to draw attention to is one that maybe is not top of the list when thinking of Morricone scores, but it's one that earned him his first Academy Award nomination, and it's Terence Malick's Days of Heaven. The film actually opens with an incredible piece of music, but it's not actually Morricone. Malick scores the opening credits with a section from Camille Sansen's Carnival of the Animals. But Morricone's first piece of music in the film and the major theme of the movie is called Harvest. It scores the first day on the farm for the newly arrived harvest workers. It's a beautiful orchestral piece which is slightly reminiscent of Carnival of the Animals itself as well as reminding me of the music of Ray Fawn Williams. It has a spiritual quality along with a melancholy but also a humble optimism. It has a sound rich and rooted deep in time but also understated and subtle. Other composers who have worked with Malick such as Hans Zimmer and James Horner have complained of his demanding style and his trademark uncompromising vision. Morricone recalled Malick was particular and made, quote, impossible decisions regarding flutes. Although Morricone scored the film, he knew Malick was going to move the pieces around and consented as long as Malick left the piece entitled Fire in place. This scores a dramatic fire scene following the Locust Plague and is jarring, dark, with a gothic-sounding bass section and piercing strings in a style which reminds me of late 40s Hollywood. Another favourite piece of mine is Threshing, which is a piano and string refrain, marching and brooding. Two final pieces, Ashes and Dust and Days of Heaven, conjure wonderfully the mood of the film, a combination of sorrow and a willful and humble optimism amidst the random chaos of nature.
Hi, I'm Dr. Russ Hunter from Northumbria University in Newcastle in the United Kingdom. I think for me, Ennio Morricone is important for a, for a number of reasons. On, on a personal level, you know, he was probably the first composer that I think I was ever aware of, first film composer, and actually maybe even the first composer full stop. Having watched and grown up with spaghetti westerns as a child, I first encountered Morricone when I saw Good, the Bad and the Ugly. And in fact, really with, Mar- with those films and with Morricone, the first thing I noticed about those films was, was the music. You know, Morricone's, it's been quite well documented, I think, Morricone's approach to using human voices, unusual instruments, all of those kind of things in, in films like The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, for instance. Um, really innovative and really interesting. But I think what's also important and interesting about Morricone is that he's somebody who's worked across film genres and also across film budgets. There are some composers who, you know, sort of once they they, they make it in inverted commas, um, really only work on big budget films. But actually someone like Morricone, his entire career worked across maybe a low budget giallo, maybe a sort of soft core erotic film, but also um, all the way up then to something uh, that we might class as art cinema, like Cinema Paradiso, or for instance, um, The Mission, things like that, that have become quite iconic soundtracks. One of the things that's notable about Morricone's work is that often it feels relatively pared back. Uh, it feels often relatively simple. Now, it's, that's not to say that musically it necessarily is simple, but it but it can feel, I think, like it's quite simple. And that's part of the, the effectiveness in many ways, because it feels like a very like a very direct form of, of, of music, of film music. The music that I want to talk about briefly is, is the, the main theme for Cinema Paradiso. I think one of the things that struck me when I first watched Cinema Paradiso was how important the music was. Now, it's a film that really, is a, really explores issues around memory and nostalgia and the importance that cinema plays in our life and how all of those things combine together really the the main theme to that fits into what i talked about earlier it's relatively pared back it seems relatively simple it starts off as just being a piano and then we have violins coming they're two instruments that actually lend themselves well to creating a generally a sense of kind of melancholy and of reflection uh, and i think that's what they they do really well in this particular soundtrack and and the the theme tune is is interesting because obviously like many films theme tunes we have that as a theme that literally musically runs throughout the the entire film and in fact after the destruction of the cinema in cinema paradiso um what happens then is we have that main theme repeated but it's done in a slightly slower played in a slightly slower fashion and using largely just violins so it feels even more melancholic and there's something about the main theme and then how the rest of the soundtrack develops from that that really gives us a very strong sense of nostalgia it's odd to think about music making you feel nostalgia but music obviously puts us into different moods and actually there is something about the paired back nature of it the choice of of instruments but also the repetition within the main theme of the sort of insistent melody that slow melody that that comes behind the main theme that does lend itself well to making one think and and actually there's an interesting contrast in in between what part of the message of the film is so at one point the main character Toto is told don't give in to nostalgia forget us all go away from this very small town and go and be somebody else and and escape and, and live your life and don't don't think that things might have been better back here don't have rose-tinted spectacles 
But actually, oddly, the music, the theme that runs throughout, the musical theme that runs throughout the film, just makes one come back and, and be nostalgic and think about the past and think about what's happened whilst watching the film, earlier in the film, but also, I think, takes you out of the film and makes one, if you listen to this soundtrack independently, it makes you think about the past. It does make you sort of quite contemplative, really. And, it, and it's one of the few soundtracks, I think, actually, that you can listen to by itself and musically is, is a very beautiful thing to listen to. And Morricone is particularly good, I think, at creating soundtracks that can be listened to independent of, of the film. This is Simone Batros, Film Jive co-host. I'm discussing Ennio Morricone's composition, Gabriel's Oboe, from the 1986 film, The Mission. It is not surprising that from a film steeped in sentimentalizing colonialism emerges a song that when simply played as a quiet oboe solo, nests in the heart of the listener growing orchestrally to sprout wings and take flight. 
in a soaring musical swell, this song's melody feels more than sweeping. The melody feels remembered, nostalgic, in the song Gabriel's Oboe. Ennio Morricone composes a melody of even measure, patient tempo, lingering repetition, and ascending scale, hearkening a nostalgia instantly upon first hearing it, where there is no prior memory. This immediate nostalgia manifests one of movie-making's core capacities to stir emotion and elicit palpable responses. For the 1986 film The Mission, Ennio Morricone composed a score which includes the liturgical choral driven by Andean drum on earth as it is in heaven, heralding Jesuit missionaries along South America's Iguathu River as defeated but valiant. The trumpeting battle rally, The Sword, immortalizes a Eurocentric history in which the Society of Jesus, an order of priests called Jesuits, forged presumptive ethical partnerships with the Guarani people, but who, in their hubris, only fought not for the Guarani's autonomy, but for Spanish rule instead of Portuguese rule over Guarani territory. Morricone nestles within both songs, on earth as it is in heaven, and the sword. And indeed, throughout the entire score, the melody from Gabriel's oboe, centering melodic and harmonic qualities around it. As the movie's main theme, the oboe's song gently resonates like a lullaby, wafting in tearful nostalgia of a long-lost loved one. Gabriel's oboe links the Jesuit priest Gabriel to Guarani hunters. While the narrative contains the detail that Gabriel serenades the Guarani hunters by playing his oboe, a predecessor of the modern oboe, the music and sound design develop this detail into a fully realized experience. Not merely noted in expository dialogue or as a perfunctory prop, but rather in diegetic music in tandem with diegetic sound, an articulated scene unfolds slowly, deliberately. The pulsating hum of insects is a musical cue. The oboe tunes its solitary notes, gently quieting the dissonant chorus of various insect species. A bird screeches. The oboe's only accompaniment is nature. An inherent rhythm of non-musical sounds beats out the meter for the oboe's melody. In this way, the music and sound design place the oboe in concert with the environment and not in opposition. Ghosting the song's first two measures, and in a soft, distant volume, the notes of the third measure call out from the dense jungle, rising in volume as though a reverse echo. The oboe repeats these notes. This first musical phrase ends with a half cadence, an inhale. With held breath, the ear draws close, expecting. The timpani rumble, regretfully the only non-diegetic element, signifies approaching Guarani hunters. Does this historically revise the Guarani as the intruders upon a romanticized solemnity of Europe's manifest destiny? As a typical musical cue, which underscores a foreboding presence, this trope remains within the European perspective, musically and figuratively. Just as the European timpani plays background accompaniment to the European oboe, the Guarani hunters play background 
to the Jesuits for the film's entirety. More poetic, however, the diegetic crunch of shoulders brushing palm leaves and the clank of the hunter's bows also sound the Guarani's present. Had the previously employed restraint remove the timpani, leaving only diegetic sound in the scene, the foreboding association with the Guarani hunters would evaporate and keep all music diegetic presence and generated by the people in the moment. However, unaware of the non-diegetic timpani, the oboe plays on. Unaware of the approaching Guarani hunters, so too the priest plays on, breathes on, releases the held breath in the single exhaled note. Entering the second phrase of the melody in an anacrusis, an incomplete measure. The incomplete measure of an anacrusis seeks completion by the end of the musical phrase in another incomplete measure, which contains the beats missing from the first measure. By composing the first musical phrase to end in a half cadence and the next one to start with an anacrusis, Morricone winds tension into this soothing melody Hastening to completion, 16th notes hurry the melody in rhythmic diminution. Ascending notes climb to epogee to the snap of a branch under a hunter's foot. Abruptly halts the song. A bird warbles. Palm leaves rustle. Water pools. Digetic sound interrupts the musical phrasing of the priest's song giving texture and rhythm to the scene. The sounds punctuate the music's tension, which reflects the tension between the priest and the hunters. The hunter deliberately snapping the branch decides to make his presence known. He speaks, the Jesuit does not. The hunter's voice staccato and sharp as a two-note drumlick stops the song. Yet an intricacy from the half cadence Anacrusis, rhythmic diminution, and ascending scale threads the melody into the mind, remembering itself upon the listener. Rather than speak, the priest voices his appeal to the hunters through his oboe. As the sound of the hunter's voice expresses music, the music of the oboe now expresses sound. Sound and music are the dialogue of the scene. Timidly notes pant forth like gasped breath and stuttered words from the priest, and the diegetic music remains tangible and grounded in the actions and reality of the characters. Metaphorically, in the panting notes, the oboe seeks out the melody. When finding it, the oboe plays the first two measures previously omitted, as if now remembering. These opening measures, a circulo mezzo, the Baroque ornament of notes arcing into a half circle, aspiring to a musical circle, symbolizes eternity, sublime perfection, and God for 18th century Baroque musicians and Spanish Jesuits. Calmly continuing in its simple quadruple meter, the priest's song unfolds in four beats divided in two parts per measure, conveying his steady and even manner. The simple meter offers a transparency and consistency that can be trusted. The patient tempo lays the melody bare 
for tranquil observation to soak into the listener. The Guarani hunters encircle the Jesuit. Just as his melody invites observation, the priest invites the hunter's close inspection. In the basic perfunctory way, the quadruple meter and slow tempo would be realistically played by Jesuits of even a modest musical training. However, the piercing chords in the height of the melody belie such a lackluster reasoning for the simple meter and tempo composed for this song and this pivotal moment. The melody repeats. Again, the song's notes quicken and ascend this second time recalling the first, and the ear anticipates it, remembering the tune first heard only seconds ago. Gabriel's oboe seeps its rising notes and sure rhythm into listening hearts and minds as tenderly as lullabies, hymns, folk songs, and other strophic music defined by their repeating melody forming lasting nostalgia. And nearly at the very same moment in the melody, the same astute, defiant hunter's voice interrupts the musical phrase. A second snap, parallel but more final than the first. The broken obois concludes the Jesuit's song. As another hunter sympathizes with the priest, retrieves the broken obois, and extends his hand, leading him to their home. The sensorial sounds of legs wading through the streaming water, voices of the hunters, an insect drone. This diegetic sound staves off silent tension. The musical score, having waited, finally takes its cue, ushering in orchestral accompaniment for a disembodied oboe, the now non-diegetic Gabriel's oboe benefits from its melody having entered the character's reality and consciousness. Not relegated to background music, it hearkens a memory of the priest and the hunter's encounter, creating tenderness and nostalgia for a moment past seconds prior. From here on, every time Gabriel's oboe plays, it longs for this idealized potential of a respectful and equitable integration of the Spanish and the Guarani to have been real, to have been the history we wish we had. In three minutes, 35 seconds, the premise of the entire movie is musically expressed. And with no more than simple sounds and a skillfully, wisely composed oboe solo.
Today, the Guarani, Mojos, and Terrapocosi people of Bolivia still play the intricate and embellished Baroque music and also conduct restoration efforts of their thousands of pages of manuscripts, including compositions of Jesuit priest Domenico Zippoli, whose Adagio per Oboe, Morricone cites, as a historical reference for Gabriel's Oboe. Guarani, Mojos and Terrapacosi musicians and singers play in Bolivia's international Baroque music festival. Their resilience resounds in creating beauty out of the mechanisms of oppression, such as the Keramia brought to South America by conquistadors. Keramia is Spanish for sham, the double reed wind instrument migrating to Europe from the Eastern Mediterranean during the Crusades as a sonic weapon to disorient and confuse opposing soldiers. Conquistadors use this weapon in wars with indigenous South Americans. The Society of Jesus, missionaries taught Guarani, Mojos, and Terrapacosi people to play the Keramia as a tool of Christian conversion, seceding and colonizing by religion where violence had failed. In their effective colonial approach, Jesuit settlements and trades posed a threat, leading to the papal order of their removal in 1776. Gabriel's oboe, written to induce feelings of nostalgia, call upon patience, control, precision, and virtuosity, as highlighted by acclaimed oboist Heinrich Heim Goldschmidt's performance and violinist André Rieu, and attracting a most emotional arrangement for the cello played by Yo-Yo Ma. The song also inspired a lyrical and vocal arrangement by Sarah Brightman, British singer and songwriter, titled Nella Fantasia, in Fantasy, becoming an aria di bravura, 
displaying a singer's dexterity and technical command, continually sung by vocal virtuosos across the globe, crossing over from classical notoriety to pop culture on Korea's Got Talent 2011 episode when Choi Songbong triumphantly sung the song after surviving an orphaned and homeless childhood. Such a song lives such a life beyond the score of a movie in its simple and honest measure, patient and serene tempo, promising repetition and aspirational climb. Ennio Morricone's nostalgia for the mission runs deeper still, concluding all his concerts with Miserere, the song scoring the movie's final scene as the Guarani child lifts a violin from the wreckage of the massacre and carries it deeper into the jungle. As Morricone approached the film from a musical history perspective, he outlined three musical genres, church liturgical chorals after the Council of Trent mandates brought the missionaries to South America, South American music of the Guarani people, and the Baroque oboe of the Jesuit priest. Seeing the distinct musical sounds as problematic for creating a cohesive sound for the film, but with the film's premise demanding the presence of all three in the score, Morricone sought to integrate these three musical histories. The resulting percussive choral rise and gaining momentum in the score's finale, on earth as it is in heaven, reaches an ecstasy neither a European or South American sound, but a sound of humanity. And despite Morricone's hesitation to compose the film's score after viewing the skillfully edited Gabriel's oboe scene, because as he describes, I had to compose a theme for the oboe that sounded sort of constrained at the beginning, a theme based on the supposed notes and embellishments that the apparently untrained fingers that Father Gabriel, Jeremy Irons, employed in his oboe playing simulation. I preferred to follow this procedure in order to offer the viewer the illusion of some kind of synchronization. The song, meant only as a tool of commercialism, becomes an aria for those who will not be forgotten, its composer included.
The West existed, and we had to bear this in mind. Sergio Leone and I focused our attention on the characters, and therefore on the feelings. I would say that an act, or a thought, of love is basically the same in the US, Australia, or Africa. Certainly, there are cultural differences, but what commands in film is the way in which the audience comprehends the music. That is, what the music is saying, which isn't what the dialogue is saying. Music must be international, and you always have to bear in mind what the public is capable of understanding. For this reason, Sergio and I concentrate more on the characters and their feelings. These feelings have to be interpreted musically so that the audience is able to understand them.